Amen. You may be seated. If you have a Bible, uh, Philippians chapter 2 this morning is where we will uh, be, Philippians chapter 2. And if you're visiting, we've been on this journey in the book of, of Philippians, and we've seen that we should essentially find joy right where we are and how that we can do uh, just that. And so Philippians chapter 2. Have you ever had a debate over, uh, maybe with some friends or with some family, a debate over the uh, greatest of all time in a certain category, uh, maybe your specific category that you're interested in, but you talked about the greatest of all time, whether it's the greatest performer or whether it's the greatest, uh, I know when Peyton was here, there was a the talk of the greatest quarterback, right? Who's better, Brady or, or Manning? Who says Manning's better in the room today? Uh, not as many as I thought. Who says they don't care who's better in the room today? Okay, about the same number. I'm not going to ask about Brady because I just don't want to, I don't want to uh, disappoint people and cause people to walk out of the service. But um, <laughs> I was thinking about that this week. Who is the greatest of, of all times? And so I asked Google about a, a couple of different greatest of all times. And so I have a few up here. The first one's baseball. And here we have uh, Babe Ruth and Willie Mays. I'll be honest, I didn't know who Willie Mays was. Uh, but uh, they say MLB.com. I'm not a baseball guy, so apologize. Uh, MLB.com says these two are the greatest of all time. Uh, and so who do you think is better? That's always the question. Who's better? And uh, MLB.com would say Babe Ruth was actually uh, better uh, than uh, other people will say Babe Ruth was the, was the, is the most overhyped athlete of all times as well. And so who knows? Uh, and then the next one is hockey. Any hockey fans in the room? Hockey fans? No. Okay. Uh, all right. Well, hockey. There's Wayne uh, Gretzky or a guy who I had no clue who he was, which is Gordie Howe. Uh, Gordie Howe. And uh, NHL.com says Gordie Howe, who I had no clue who he was, was actually the greatest of all times. So what about golf? I know there's some golfers in here. Uh, you got Tiger and Jack, uh, who's the greatest of all time. Uh, well, uh, they say that uh, Jack takes the edge over Tiger. 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 Uh, and so uh, that's the greatest of all times. What about presidents? Presidents. Now I went to Google because you don't want my opinions about this, uh, but Google says it's George Washington or Abraham Lincoln. And they would give the edge uh, to Abraham Lincoln. And I saved the, the most controversial for last, basketball. They would say uh, Jordan or LeBron. And by, by the picture, you understand my preference on, on the two. And uh, the point of it all is, is simply this. The point of it all is simply this. I love that picture of LeBron. But I think we need to remove it because it's just distracting. Um, <laughs> the point of it is this, people can disagree on just about anything. People can disagree on just about anything. We can fail to have unity in just about anything, but we as believers, we'll see today, are called to unity. We're called to live a life of uniformity. But the, the, of unity, sorry, not uniformity, of, of unity. But the reality is, and the sad reality is, sometimes it's easier to have unity over uh, a category in which we're debating than it is to have unity over following the Savior of the world and living a life as God has designed us to live. Sometimes it's easier to, to have unity over a sports team or have unity over an athlete than it is to have unity around Jesus. It's almost like we'd love to meet our hero, the greatest in a certain category, but we 
oftentimes fail to unify as the church as God has called us to. We would love to sit down with the president, but so often we neglect sitting down with our Lord each, each day. So often we would love to play uh, a sport and shoot, shoot a ball like Jordan, but so often we neglect to reshoot down opportunities to share the gospel with our neighbor, and, and we struggle to live a life of unity. And so Paul's going to address a good church, a, a pretty faithful church, and he's going to show them how to be unified, and he's essentially going to show us that, hey, here's the line you follow, Jesus. Uh, how you stay unified is that you stay focused on Christ, and you develop the mind of Christ. Follow his example. Philippians. We know Epaphroditus gives Paul this gift from the church of Philippi, and of course, it's a great blessing to Paul. He probably did not have much support, if any, at the time. He spent years in prison, and Paul's response to this gift was the book of Philippians. We've established that, and I find it interesting that Paul's led to write about the potential division in the church of Philippi. Philippi is known as a pretty faithful church, but there's an issue here that Paul seems to address over and over again throughout the book of Philippians, and it's that some people in the church didn't get along. Some people in the church struggled to have unity. In fact, they're even faithful to Paul. They're, they're sending Epaphroditus to him. That costs money. They're giving him a gift. That costs money and time and energy. They're faithful to Paul, but sometimes they're not faithful to each other. And Paul seems to address that. Ephesians, or sorry, Philippians 4 will address that as well. And Paul is going to spend some time, uh, he's led uh, by the Holy Spirit of God to write these words about the sense of unity and the source of, of unity this morning and that we're going to uh, unpack. And Paul seemed to understand one thing, people are selfish. You seem to understand one thing, people left to themselves can be ruthless, they can be heartless, they can be careless. Paul will address that people can uh, strive to steal the joy that's in our lives. That, that he shows us in chapter 1 that, that circumstances shouldn't steal your joy. And now he's going to show us here that people shouldn't steal your joy. But so often they can. And so often we can also steal people's joy. And so he's going to show us and paint a picture of how we're supposed to live and how we can find joy right where we are, no matter circumstances, no matter opposition, and no matter people that are in our lives. And it's to develop a one mind, the mind of Christ. Let me just say this before we begin. Uh, understand this. At the heart of unity is humility. I think it's important to understand. At the heart of unity is humility, not uniformity. Uh, see, uh, unity is not all of us being just alike. Unity is all of us striving after Jesus. And, and that takes humility. Spiritual unity comes from within, right? Um, uniformity comes from the pressures without. I love how MacArthur defines uh, this point. He says that if you have a bag of marbles, they are unified because of the bag that surrounds them. There, there's, there's unity, appears to be unity in there. But if you poke a hole in the bag marbles will begin to fall out and they are no longer unified. They are no longer in unity because that's not true unity. That's not, biblical unity is different. Biblical unity is like a magnet. Like a magnet, and as, as there's metal clippings drawn to the magnet, what happens? There's an inward force that draws them together. And that's spiritual unity. That's how we're called to live as believers. It's the picture that Paul wants to paint 
as believers, the death, burial, and the resurrection of Jesus should uh, have this inward force, if you want to say, that unites us and that nothing should be able to tear it apart. And so he's going to give them insight to, hey, here's how you can have unity in your life. And here's how you essentially find it, uh, following the, the, the mind of Christ, developing a mind and a heart after Jesus. And so this morning, let me say this, th- this passage, we're going to get through uh, verses 1 through 11. It's rich in theology. And so we're not even uh, able to uh, begin to get into all that this passage of Scripture has to say. We can really spend weeks in this passage of Scripture. And so my encouragement would be to lean in this morning, but then dive in this week. That uh, Study this passage of Scripture for yourself. It's rich. I believe this passage of Scripture alone can help you find joy right where you are in your life. And, and, and following after Christ is what we want to do. And so I encourage you to look at this even this week. And so this morning, I want to see three things. I want to see the motives for unity, the method to unity, and the uh, method of measuring unity. The, uh, let's say it again, the motives to unity, the methods for unity, and the method of measuring unity. And so let's start with uh, number one, we'll see this, the motives to unity. Verses one and two says it this way, therefore... It, that, that word, therefore, it's tying two thoughts together, right? Man uh, did the chapter breaks, uh, and so it's tying the thoughts together. And so he says, therefore, if there's any consolation in Christ, if comfort of love, if fellowship of the Spirit, if affection and mercy, fulfill my joy by being, and he says four things, by being like-minded, by having the same love, by being of one accord, and being of one mind. And so chapter one, Paul shows us how to deal the, with the external conflicts, and now he's going to show us how to address the internal conflicts in our lives. And he's essentially saying this, you've already faced problems outside of the church. Don't add to your problems inside the church. Be unified. How? Have one mind. Be on the same page. Be together. Paul essentially says it this way. There's disunity all around you, so it shouldn't live among you. It shouldn't live uh, among you in your life as believers. Notice the word, if there is, or maybe your Bible says, if there be. It's not stating a question, like if you come to church next week, I have no clue if you will actually come. But after service, say, hey, man, if you, have, if you come to church next week, we're going to have communion, first Sunday of the month. It's going to be a great time. Uh, that's a question. I don't know. This is not questioning if there be. This is an if-then-then relationship. It says, since this is true, chapter 1, the results are this. Since all of this list that we're about to give, the motives are true, these things exist in Christ, So the result should be that we strive for one mind, that we live in one mind together. You could essentially replace the word if there is with since. And so the word, the the scripture could be read this word, since there's consolation in Christ, since there's comfort and love, since there's fellowship with the spirit, since there's affection, since there's mercy, since these things are true, the result should be that we're one mind in Christ. Since. It's a surety. And so there's some motives we see to unity that should draw us to living with one mind. And he shows us four. He says, first of all, since there's consolation in Christ. Since there's consolation in Christ. This word consolation is so deep in meaning because it means, it literally means a one who comes alongside to build up. 
what it means. It means one who comes alongside to, to build you up. And that's Jesus, right? That's ultimately what Christ has done for us. He's came alongside of us and he's made us new. He built us up. That's what Christ has done in our lives. And so Paul says to the church of Philippi, if my encouragement has been any help to you, if my life has been any help to you, understand it wasn't me. Understand the foundation of it all was that it's all because of the consolation in Christ. It's all because of Christ uh, through my life. Because here's the reality. When Jesus looks down on, or when God looks down on us because of Jesus, if we've confessed with our mouth and believe in our heart, when God looks down on us, he sees that, that we're in Christ. He sees that we have consolation in Christ. 2 Corinthians 1.5 says it this way. For the sufferings of Christ abound in us. So our consolation, that deep level of encouragement now also abides through Christ. That Jesus is not distant from our trials or our circumstance, but he's actually our consolation because of them. Through them, that he is in all things our consolation. Spurgeon says it this way, the Holy Spirit consoles, but Christ is our comforter. That the Holy Spirit's the physician, but Christ is the medicine. And God sent the Holy Spirit uh, to us as a comforter, but it's Christ in which we even have the ability to be comforted. It's Christ. He's our true consolation in all uh, things. And so we're blessed to even know Christ, and we're blessed to be in Christ. He's our consolation in all things. And there should, Paul says, Church of Philippi, there's nothing that should unite you more than knowing that you're in Christ. And friend, that's the same thing that applies to us. There's nothing that should unite us more as believers than the reality that we are in Christ this morning, if you know Christ this morning. But Jesus knew that unity would be a problem in the church. He knew it. In John 17, while he was, while he was on his earthly ministry, he actually prays for unity in the church. John 17, 21. He gives a rich passage. I don't have time to read it all, but in John 17, 21, he literally prays for the people in John to be unified, but then he prays that the ministry impact that they have, which is us post all believers to be unified. He says it this way, John 17, 21. I pray that they all may be one. All. Past, present, and future. All believers. I pray that they may be one as you, the Father, are in me and I in you. That they may also be one in us. He says, I pray. This is my prayer, Lord. I pray that believers are unified as the Trinity is in unity. I pray that they're walking the same way, that their hearts are beating as one. I pray that they live in a state of unity. And the best motive for that, he says, is that they're in Christ, is that they're in us. That's the best motive, that consolation of Christ. The second thing we see here is this, we have comfort of love. We have comfort of love. There's no doubt that Paul's love for Philippi has been, effort, has been evident. There's no doubt that the comfort that Philippi has received because of the love of Paul has been evident as well. There's no doubt that the endurance that Paul has, has made and the example that Paul has set has, been, has allowed Philippi to reach a level of endurance. He endured, I can endure too. There's, there's no doubt about it. It's been a great comfort. It's been a great comfort to you. And Paul says, I, if, I've, if I've helped comfort you, do me a favor and be in unity. If I've helped comforted you, do me a favor and be in unity with believers. But, but of course, we know that the greatest comfort, the greatest form of comfort in which we have received is God's, uh, how God communicated his love towards us, right? John 5, 8. But God commendeth his love towards us that while we were still actively in sin, Christ died for us. 
right? And that's the greatest form, that's the greatest comfort of love is that Jesus would do that for us even though we didn't deserve it, even though we had no rights to achieve it, even though we were bound and hopeless. Jesus comforted us with the love of the cross through sending Christ to die on the cross for our sins. Paul will even say, you know how I love Philippi? I love Philippi through the channel of Christ's love for me. And so Paul says, if, if my love and if Christ's love makes any difference to you at all, it should come out on how you treat others, on how you choose to live in a state of unity with others. The third thing is this, there's fellowship of the Spirit. That this fellowship is made possible, the fellowship of the Spirit is made possible through salvation. We know if you confess and believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, then you're sealed with the Spirit and you have fellowship with the Spirit because of salvation. And Ephesians 4 will tell us that this fellowship was created by the Holy Spirit for us. And so Paul says, enjoy the fellowship that you have in the Spirit. You should enjoy it. That should be a motive in which you stay unified because we as believers have fellowship with the Spirit. And we should be sensitive to the Holy Spirit. We should allow the Holy Spirit to guide us and direct us and shape us. And as we're sensitive and we allow the Holy Spirit to guide our lives... What will happen? We'll be drawn to a spirit of unity for the faith of the gospel because we're striving to live our lives after Jesus. Fellowship of the Spirit. And the last thing that he shows us here is this, affection and mercy. He says, have compassion. Philippi, he says, I I know that you've experienced this deep affection of the Lord and this tender care of the Lord. And so now let it be evident in your life too. This should draw you in. This should keep you unified because you have experienced the deep level of affection of the Lord and you've, you've experienced the tender care of the Lord and that should change things. And so often we live our lives and we just get distracted by that reality that God was that for us. And yet we, we get mixed up on all these different things that goes on in our life, the frustrations, the headaches, the financial circumstances, uh, the divisions. We get so mixed up on just the mundane of our life that we lose sight that God was affectionate to us. God was merciful to us, and that should change how we live. And it says, Philippi, it should change how you live too. Paul says, if what Jesus has done for you makes any difference to you at all, it should come out in the way that you strive to be in unity because that's what he's called us to. If, he's done, if, if what Jesus has done in your life makes any difference at all, that you should actually put aside your own will and follow his will. That, that if Jesus loving you makes a difference, that you will love others as he has loved others. You will care for others as he has cared for others. And so he continues and he says, fulfill my joy by being like-minded. This is the, the same attitude. This is, he says, be on the same mission. We know that Paul lived his life completely sold out for the Lord, and so this wasn't a prideful joy. This was was an assurance that his people were following after God, that the people he had impact in, that his work was paying off in a way. Not not for him, but for God be the glory. He says, fulfill my joy by being like-minded, being on the same mission. By having the same love, he says. This is an unconditional, affectionate love. As Christ loved the church, we're in that same love. He says, uh, being of one accord, that that means to be joined in the soul. 
That, that, that's how we live. We're actually joined in the soul with one another. And he says, be of one mind. And eventually he'll tell us that that one mind is to develop the mind of Christ. And we should display uh, in our unity that we're like-minded, that we're of one accord, that we want to strive together for the faith of the gospel because that's what Jesus wanted calls us to do. That's what Jesus did. And we want to live in that light. He says, stay in that perspective in all things. And Paul would essentially say four different elements to living in unity to essentially say this. Unity is essential for the spiritual growth of the church. Unity is essential for the spiritual growth of the church. And the best way for the gospel to go forward is through a unified church. Just keep your focus. Keep your focus in what I've called you to do. And the reality is uh, our unity as believers is simply this. It's an expression of our gratitude for God. Our unity as believers is simply an expression of our gratitude for God. Because we, we want to live on the same page. We want to do what God called us to do. We want to live faithful to him. We want to uh, strive together for the faith of the gospel. We want to be accountable. We want to have unity founded in the foundational of the scriptures because that's what God calls us to. And it's, so ju- it's just an expression to say, God, I love you, and I'm going to prove it by staying unit- in unity. I'm going to prove it by denying myself and staying with it. You know, sometimes the, the biggest struggle for a believer is not uh, the uh, affliction that we face. It, it's not the opposition that we face. It's not even the people that we have to deal with or the circumstances in our life. So often the biggest struggle for believers is dying to self every day. So often that's the biggest struggle that we have. And that's why we face uh, an element of disunity all around us in our nation. And, and even in, it bleeds into our churches because we fail to deny ourselves. And so Paul says, here's some motives. Remember, this is what you get because of Jesus, because of the work of Jesus, what Christ has offered you, and let that be motives to staying unified in all things, the motives for unity. Secondly, I want you to see the methods towards unity, the methods towards unity. Verse 3 and 4 says this, let nothing be done through strife or selfish ambitions or vainglory or conceit, but in lowliness of mind, let each esteem others better than himself. Let each of you look not on your own interest, but also on the interest of others. So Paul will give us two things that will keep us from unity and two methods that will help us be drawn to unity. And so the first two are what will hinder unity. It says this, selfish afflictions will hinder biblical unity. Sorry, selfish ambitions will hinder biblical unity in your life. You say, what's that mean? Well, it means when someone puts their own interests above others. That's the wrong motives. When it's just about you, the world will call it uh, what's in it for me mentality. And and Paul will say that mindset will cause a church's unity and a believer's unity to crumble. That's not the right mindset to have. What's in it for you is not the right heart to have. Selfish ambitions, strife. the, The world may call it drive, but the but the scripture says it actually divides. That it may be drive to the world, go get your own, go worry about yourself, go pursue yourself. But the world says, hey, if you live in that life, it truly only divides. It does not bring unity. That's not what Christ has called us to. The second, uh, uh, well, uh, let me say this real quick on, on this point. Uh, God, God shows us in his word that he wants us to deal with conflict biblically before it, it, before it leads us to uh, issues of division. That God calls us to deal with conflicts before they divide us. That the Bible says that God, uh, the Bible says that God hates six things, yea, seven are abomination. What's the seventh one? 
He who sows discord among the brethren. He who sows discord among the church. And so we're called to, to live a life of a unity. And he says selfish ambitions will not get us there. The second thing is conceit or, or vainglory. We have some air conditioner leaking over here. And so if you, I see some people like looking over there. It's just dripping. We have a bucket over there. And so um, anyone want to fix that later? They can. Um, <laughs> Where was they at? He says, uh, selfish ambitions. Then he says, conceit, or I love the word vainglory. And he says, this will not lead you to biblical unity. I love this word because it's so rich. It means empty glory. It's not just you're conceited. It means you, you have empty glory. You're displaying an attitude of empty glory. It's, it's when you're the one who most benefits from the things that you do. It's, it's the kind of same thing. It's all about you. He says that's the wrong motives, that's the wrong heartbeat that you should, that, that's not the heartbeat that you should have. It's when you uh, want acknowledgement from men more than approval from God. That's conceit, that's vain glory. And Paul even addresses this in Romans 12 whenever he says this, don't, look, don't think of yourself more highly than you ought to think, but how should you think of yourself? Soberly, humbly. It's a spirit of humility. And essentially Paul's saying this, selfishness and pride have no place in, in the unified church. Selfishness and pride is an obsession of self, and that's not going to bring us to a place of unity. And so stay away from, from those things, is what it'll tell us to. The problem is, I don't know about you, but that's a struggle. It's easy to say, don't be selfish, don't be prideful, but it's extremely difficult to achieve because it's addictive. Our whole life has been selfish and pride, right? Little kids in the nursery, selfishness and pride. High schoolers, selfishness are every, I'm selfishness and pride. It's so hard to kill because it's so addictive. And understand, selfishness and pride is what drew Lucifer out of heaven. Selfishness and pride is what drew Adam out of paradise. Selfishness and pride, we looked at Ecclesiastes a few months ago, is what drew Solomon's heart away from the Lord and onto ungodly women. Selfishness and pride. And selfishness and pride is what the devil wants to use to disunify our church. So, so Paul says, Philippi, understand, you're faithful, you're given to me, but understand this, avoid selfishness and pride. It will not unify you. It will only cause you to be divided. And then he gives us two ways, that, that, uh, two methods that help us unite. He says humility is a key to biblical unity. He says it this way, lowliness of mind. Now Paul isn't telling uh, Philippi to have no thoughts of themselves. Paul isn't telling uh, Philippi to have low thoughts of themselves. He, he's not saying biblical unity is so much richer than that. Biblical unity is so much more. Biblical humility is so much more than just simply saying, don't worry about your feelings, worry about everybody else. He's not telling you to hide in a corner and never express yourself and don't have open accountability in church and don't have people to help you to. He's saying consider others before you consider you. Biblical unity is, in fact, this. Biblical, hum biblical humility is thinking of others more and thinking more of others. That's it. Thinking of others more, but also thinking more of others. That you're more considerate, but you also give people the benefit of the doubt sometimes. You know, you can kind of have that mentality, and I'm sure Philippi did too. Paul's addressing it, that you kind of read the room and you can, oh, I know, I know that type of person, Right? Uh, stay on edge with that type of person right there. What does it say? Biblical humility is saying, hey, I'm going to treat people better, and I'm going to give people the benefit of the doubt sometimes because I want to pursue unity for the advancement of the gospel of Christ. Lowliness is being more considerate and giving people the benefit of the doubt. I'm not proud of this illustration, but in college, 
Uh, I struggled with being lowliness of mind. I struggled. I went to a small college, which was problem number one. And I played basketball there. Uh, but a small college playing basketball, you could get very prideful because it's a small college. Everybody kind of knows who you are. And for a 19-year-old, that's not good to handle because it just goes straight to your head. Like, oh, I'm a big man on campus. Let's go. Let's, let's, I can ride this out. And I remember uh, I struggled with that early on. And freshman year, I remember our vice president of the college, I wasn't really walking with God a ton at that time. And the vice president said, hey, you can use it for your glory or you can use this for God's glory. And I remember thinking, okay, uh, turn everything spiritual on me, right? Uh, and I remember, uh, I'll never forget this one event. We were in an intramural basketball game. Our college was, was playing. They had a bunch of teams. And we were just watching, you know, over in the corner, just alone by ourselves, basketball guys all in the corner, like, on the corner, like they're not good enough to play with us, so we're going to go kind of make fun of them. And honestly, we were just having a lighthearted good time. And we were over here, we were just picking fun at the people uh, that were trying to play on the court. And, and we weren't being obnoxious about it, like calling people out like some people do. We were just doing it with each other. Nobody knew we were doing it, so we thought, which is still wrong, by the way. Uh, but that's what we were doing over here in the corner. And I'll never forget, there was this team warming up. It was one of the last games. And they had this big kid, six, seven, six, eight, and he was playing. And it was warm-ups, but this guy was what you would traditionally call a try-hard, right? And you always know those types of people. And he was just going off. Like he was hustling to the end lines and warm-ups. It's an intramural scrimmage game, man. Like he had the gear on. He was sweating. He was taking it serious. He was doing all things to the glory of God is what he was doing. He was, he was passionately doing what he was doing. And we were having fun with that, right? Because we're the good guys on campus. Like, we're the big shots. So we're just casually poking fun. Not at him, but he became the source of all of our jokes. Like, the whole time, we're just laughing at each other. Man, 6A, why didn't he join the team? You're not good enough. Blah, blah. All this stuff that we're saying. And I'll never forget it because uh, uh, over here, uh, a little ways away from us, there was a family sitting. And, and we didn't think anybody could hear us. But I'll never forget that this family turns around at us. And they say, as politely as they could, they say, could you, could you guys stop? They said, that's my son, and that's, that's extremely hurtful. I'll never forget our countenance just dropped because we failed to be lowly of mind, and, and it hit. That although we were just having fun, which was wrong, that, that it actually affected people, and we didn't think more of others, and, and, it, and it hurt. And, and the, the funny thing about that whole story is the next year, actually try out and make the team. And so then he was, he was one of us, and he's actually better than we, we thought he was. But, but we didn't think more of others. And so often we can just so naturally have that mindset and we don't have, we're not lowliness of mind that he calls us to. And, and what we'll see is that the only way to have true unity in Christ is to have humility there too. It's the only way to have true unity in Christ is to have humility there too. And oftentimes our lack of unity can reveal a spiritual problem with our fellowship with God. And that's what, that's what was happening with me. My lack of unity, we were all on the same page in Bible college pursuing ministry, but I had a, I had a disconnection with the fellowship with God, and that caused me to be disunified with, with people and selfish and prideful in those moments. Now, sure, the Bible gives us plenty of reasons that we cannot have unity, but Paul's not addressing doctrinal issues here. He's simply addressing selfishness and pride and that you should not allow that to disunify you. And the uh, fourth thing is this, love is the key to biblical unity. He says, esteem others is how he puts it. Esteem others. This word esteem means to count it to be true. 
Paul's not telling you to lie. He's not telling you to do something that's not true. He's telling you to consider others before you consider you. That's what he's telling you. Consider others before you consider you. Esteem others in your life. Because it appears to be evident that Philippi was a faithful church, but some people in Philippi were interested in themselves or in their group more than they were interested in God. And Paul just says, hey, hey, real quick, here's what you need to do. You need to esteem others. You need to lift others up. You need, love needs to be this motivation. Humility and love. You need to esteem others in all things. Remember whenever you first got married, or maybe you're not married, you got a roommate, or maybe uh, your parents had another kid and they kicked your brother in your room. Uh, but uh, what happens when that happens? You start living together and two worlds collide, right? I remember I was 23 whenever I got married and uh, this girl uh, that I married wanted to come into my life and try to change the things that I did and the, and the rhythms that I had in my life, right? And what happens? The saying happy wife, happy life is a, is a blatant lie. That is not true. I'm sorry, but that's just, that's just not true. That, does, that has no longevity. It doesn't. Because if I do what she wants to do, she, uh, she always says if I bring her up or let her know and I fail to let her know, I'm going to bring you up. Um, so... Uh, <laughs> If I do what she wants to do, which I didn't in this moment, and she does what she wants to do, there's no longevity there. But if I do what I want to do and she does what I want to do, there's no longevity there either. But if each of us prefer one another, if each of us uh, sacrifice for one another, there can be unity. And Paul says that's what you need. There can be unity. There's some motives that you have comfort in Christ, fellowship of the Spirit, comfort of love, uh, of, uh, affection and mercy. There's some motives that should draw you to that. But here's how you do it. Be humble and esteem others. Be humble and esteem others in your life. There's some methods. And the last thing is, is this. There's a method of measuring unity. You say, what's well, that? There are a lot of things that we measure in our life. There are a lot of things we measure. We measure our health, we measure our weight, we measure our uh, uh, height. We, even last week, we measured the state of the health of the church with a quarterly report. We, we measure all kinds of things. The Colts are hopefully measuring their, their staffing decisions, right? Hopefully Village is not measuring theirs, but uh, we, me we measure things, right? Measuring is a good thing. Measuring is good to do. It's good to weigh out. It's good to measure things. But if you have the wrong uh, method of measurement, it can be very dangerous. You've seen this in businesses where they try to thrive, but then they have the wrong method of measurement and they crumble. Hopefully you haven't seen this, but you've seen this in investments. You have the wrong method of measurement. You weigh the odds a different way and, and things fall apart. You've seen this in churches. They had the wrong method of measurements and, and things crumble. And so Paul, I love that he says, here's how you can have unity, but here's the line that you're supposed to follow, Jesus. This is the line, verse 5 through 11 will show us a line in which we're supposed to follow uh, in all things. And I love this reality. But before we dive into the practicality of this, I want to uh, lay out two massive theological things that are in this text that I think is important for us to understand because there's so many people who are misguided by these realities. The first one is what's called the, the hydrostatic union. What essentially that means is that there's a reality that Jesus was 100% God and 100% man. Uh, there, there's some that will believe when the Bible says being in the form of God, he did not consider robbery to be equal with God. There's some believe that, that Jesus was, was a lower God or that Jesus sacrificed uh, the means of being God. But no, the Bible's, the Bible's clear. Jesus was 100% God and 100% man. And I think that's important for us to understand that as Jesus took on human nature, he, he still remained fully God. 
John 8 will tell us that. John 10 will tell us that Jesus has always been God. And while Jesus remained as God, he became a man, still remaining God. It was the only way for us to have true atonement for our sins. Jesus had to have been fully man and fully God. It's important for us to understand that this morning because the reality is I can't die for your sins. I can die in your place. I can jump and take a bullet in front of you, but I can't die for your eternal sins. And if I did, who would die for my eternal sins? I'm not perfect. You're not perfect. Jesus was the only one capable because he was fully God and fully man. I wanted to lay that out for you real quick. The second thing is this. The Bible says that Jesus made himself of no reputation. Other translations will say that Jesus emptied himself. And this is an important thing to understand that Jesus did not leave divine attributes. Jesus did not become a lesser God. Colossians 2.9 says this, for in him dwells the fullness of the Godhead bodily. He, he was, he is, he still is. What's that mean? He always was God and he voluntarily left simply the glory of heaven to serve you, to seek and to save you. Why? Because he's the only one capable. He's the only one that could. And so it's important for us to understand because there's many people who are deceived by this reality that think that Jesus was just another man or a prophet or a good, or a good person. No, Jesus was God. And he came because he loved you and he came to serve you. And so here's the line that we're to follow, practically speaking. The first thing is this, Jesus had a mind to minister. I'm sorry, I don't know why I said minister. He had a mind to minister too. Jesus had a mind to serve. He had a mind to serve. Paul says the goal is to have a mind of Christ. And Jesus shows us he had the mind that I've told you, the motives, that's in Christ. He was humble. He was a servant. He had the mind of Christ. We're to have the mind of Christ. Verse 5 says this, let this mind be in you, which is also in Christ Jesus, who being in the form of God, did not think it robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation, taking on a form of a bondservant, and coming in the likeness of men, being found in the appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross. That the most powerful king did not exercise his kingship to free himself, but to free you. To free you. Verse 6 and 11 will actually be known as an early church hymn that the early church would echo. And this would be an early church hymn that they would write, which is so rich in theology and so fascinating, just the rhythms in which this passage has. And I want you to notice the title that was used, Christ Jesus. That's significant. It's not just that I'm going to flip the word and this, and no, this is significant. This is talking about the Messiah. This is something that this culture would have longed to hear. Christ Jesus means anointed Messiah when it's used now. This Greek word, Christ Jesus, anointed Messiah. Essentially, he's saying, Philippi, this is who we've been waiting for. Why are we living in division? This is who we've been waiting for. This is the anointed Messiah. In verse 11, he'll use the phrase Jesus Christ, which means uh, this, Jehovah is our salvation savior. And so I want you to get the picture. He's saying the anointed Messiah left the glory of heaven to seek and to save that which was lost because he's the only one capable to. Remember that. Live in unity with that. This is who we've been waiting for. And Paul will remind us, don't forget that. Serve that God because he's deserving to be served. You know, sometimes I think we struggle to live unified because we struggle uh, because our faith doesn't move us enough to unify. Sometimes I think we struggle to live in unity as a church and unity with other believers because our faith doesn't move us like it moved them. 
Because if it did, would we really allow senseless divisions to divide us? There should be nothing, as we said, consolation of Christ. There should be nothing that unites us more than the, than the power of the gospel, than what Christ has done for us. But so often, it doesn't move us enough. Someone once said this, there were three kinds of reaction to Jesus and people in the Bible. The first one was that they were afraid of him and they tried to kill him. The second one was that they were afraid of him and ran from him or were smitten by him. And the third one was that they gave their life to him. But he goes on to say there was no mediocre reaction to Jesus in the Bible. But so I'm sad, the sad reality is I think there's oftentimes a mediocre reaction to Jesus in, in the American church. That sometimes I think I'd be more excited and I'd tell everybody I knew if I met Jordan, but I can meet Jesus every day, but does it shake me in the same way? I can meet with Christ every moment of every day, but does it move me? I'll jump at opportunities to play golf with Tiger, but do I jump at opportunities to spend time in God's word? He says, hey, stay unified. Remember, this is the Messiah who you've been waiting for. He didn't just come to be king. He came to serve because he was king. Because he needed a king to come and to sacrifice for you. Paul says the most high went to a criminal's cross. He suffered the worst of the worst to save you. And so let's be united around that reality. He says being in the form of God, he did not think it robbery to be equal with God. Uh, but he made himself of no repute. Uh, being, uh, being in the appearance of man, he humbled himself, became obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross. Paul says he did not think it robbery to be equal with God because he was God. That word being in the Greek means uh, to uh, continue to exist as. That he didn't think it robbery because he continued to exist as. That word form means an, an outward expression of an inward nature, that it was not robbery because he was still God. He was still inwardly by nature God, and Jesus never stopped being God. Galatians 4, verse 4 and 5 will tell us this, and he was always in his earthly life, he was always worthy of worship, but he chose to serve. He was always worthy of worship, but he chose to serve us, being made with no reputation. He took a form of a bondservant. We said in, in week one that bondservant is a, a voluntarily serving out of your own free will. This was a voluntary action that Christ has done on our behalf, coming in the likeness of men that God in flesh gave so that we may know him. And yet we allow differences to divide us. Paul says, Philippi, be like Christ, serve others. And then he says, lastly, he says, have a mind of humility. Jesus had a mind of humility. He says, being found in the appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross. That Jesus died so that you may live. And that as Jesus died, he says, display my humility. Display my humility. And isn't it amazing that Jesus modeled this to the point of death, to the point of suffering, that Jesus actually calls us to give of ourselves as Christ gave to the church, and he modeled it to the point of death, that we're so supposed to strive for biblical unity in all things, not until there's personal divisions. We're supposed to strive to live united and serve others and give of ourselves. Jesus humbled himself. He became obedient he submitted to the will of the Father. And so what happens? Land slain before the slaughter. Jesus brutally murdered on a cross. The pain and the suffering in which he faced, but the physical pain, that wasn't it. It was the spiritual suffering. 
the endurance of your sins and mine, all of them together, every murder, every rape, every theft, every lie, Jesus did what was necessary to serve you so that you may know him. And now he says, hey, live in unity. Live together for the faith of the gospel. Paul says, you know what will help you be unified? Don't forget who the Savior is. Don't forget what the Savior did. Don't forget that he was still God and yet he still came because he's the only one that could. You know, I had a thought this week. I was reading Revelation 13. You remember in Revelation 13, John sees a vision. I'm sorry, I may be going late. Uh, but John sees a vision and John's vision, what's he see? He goes up to heaven, he sees Jesus. And you remember the picture that John gave of Jesus? Anybody remember it? The lamb slain before the foundation of the, the world. I had this thought that Jesus in his glorified body was viewed as a slain lamb. That the scars still remained. And, and my thought was this, that Jesus, Jesus, the, the only part that I had a part to play in heaven was the scars on, on my Savior. The, the only part that, the work that Christ says through me, that's all Christ. The only part that we had a part in well, what was the scars that, that are on, on Christ because of us? And so this week I've been telling myself, hey, I can, I can, I can, be, I can sacrifice. I can strive to be selfless. I can strive to be humble. I can strive for unity because that's what he did for me. And so, man, I want to strive to live that out because, because Christ did all things. We're excited to get to heaven to, to have no more pain, no more suffering, have perfect bodies. Christ was excited to come here to allow us to be glorified for him. And so may we live in unity in all things. And look at verse 9 through 11. The humbled servant is now exalted. It says this. Therefore God has highly exalted him. God's given him the highest rank. And it says this. And given him a name above every name, which is, which is a name that was rejected, but is now glorified. He says it this way, verse 10, that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Wow. That Jesus was humble and God exalted him. That Jesus came to serve and now every knee would bow. This is, of course, uh, Isaiah 45, a prophecy of Isaiah 45. I don't have time to get into it, but uh, you can know if you want Isaiah 45. And, and essentially, it's the same passage. That this is Jesus. is a picture of Jesus. That every knee should bow. That Jesus Christ is Lord. And he says, Jesus came to touch, but now every tongue will confess that it's him. He, he's worthy. He is Lord. Let me ask, is he your Lord this morning? Do you know Christ this morning? Has there been a time when you've confessed with your mouth and believed in your heart that Jesus was, in fact, God and that he came to seek and to say? Has there been a time when you've done that? The Bible says that there will be a day when everyone will say it, but one day it will be too late to claim it. So do you know him this morning? I would love for today to be that day when you, when you confess with your mouth and believe in your heart because there's nothing better in life that could be accomplished than for you to know Christ. Do you know him? You know, we see this morning, do, you, do we have the right motives for unity? Remember the consolation of Christ, the comfort of his love, the fellowship we have with the Spirit, the affection and the mercy that we have because of God. 
Remember that. That should be motivation for us to live united. Do we have the right methods? Are we selfish? Are we prideful? Or are we selfless and humble? Do we love others as Christ has loved the church? And then we see finally, do we have the right method of measurement? Let this mind be in you, which was in Christ. He's the line. Stay, stay on the line. Stay on the line. As we close, I, I, I think of a song. And if you, uh, we'll, we'll close in a, a legit song at the end, but uh, I want to sing this song together. And it's up on the screen if you don't uh, know it, and you can kind of get some uh, familiar, it's an old song. But my, my ask is that you, as you sing it, if you do know it, to help me sing it, but to close your eyes as you sing it. And to think and to consider what Christ has done for you. The, the, the line in which he saw, the humility of Christ and now the glorification of Christ to be exalted and how that should trigger something in our hearts to say, hey, let's, use, let's live united. Parenting styles, who cares? Let's live united. Music preference, who cares? Let's live united. Differences, who cares? I watch the NFL, I don't. Who, who cares? Let, let's live united over the faith of the gospel because he's worthy of being exalted. Would you, would you sing this with me? If you know it, close your eyes as you sing, and it goes like this. Jesus, 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 there's just something about that name. Is there something this morning about that name? Master, Savior, Jesus, like a fragrance after the rain. Jesus, 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 let all heaven and earth proclaim. Kings and kingdoms will all pass away, but there's something about that name. If there's something about that name this morning, may we live exalted. May we live united. Let's pray. Lord, I thank you for this day. Lord, I thank you that you came. You humbled yourself, you became obedient to death, still remaining 100% God, and you sacrificed for us so that we may have an opportunity to know you. Lord, I pray that that name, Jesus, will be much more than just a name that we casually confess for a ticket to heaven, but it will be a name that we live our lives glorifying and we live our lives united around there's something about your name. And may there be something about your name. May your name cause us to live motivated to unify. May your name cause us to live humble and selfless. And may your name cause us to follow you because you're worthy. It's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen.